Good morning. My name is Anne-Marie Shambaugh, and the scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 22:34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to you all. You know, when we were uh, first married, my wife and I uh, kind of staved off the whole early wedding baby craving thing by convincing our uh, landlord to let us get a dog. And so we adopted a little brindle shih tzu that we named Henry. And he was a great dog. I know because we bought him from agreatdog.com. That's where we got him. And uh, when, it's actually, it's a breeder in Iowa, in case you're wondering. The website's still there, but the prices have gone up. Uh, When we got him, I knew I needed to learn how to train a dog. We had had dogs growing up, but I had never trained one or known how to train one. Uh, And so I learned some new things in my reading. I already knew that dogs were pack animals. I didn't know that now that I had a dog, I needed to be the alpha male, or at least one of us needed to be the alpha. Uh, One of us needed to be able to stare that dog right in his little beady eyes and speak with a firm voice and a strong tone and say, sit, or, you know, whatever we needed it to do. Now, it wasn't too long before we actually managed to get him pretty decently well-trained. We did the whole treats for positive behavior, um, kind of, you know, you, you sort of tap him on the back of the neck for negative behavior and, and, and all of that. So we could get him to walk on a leash without pulling. We could get him to sit and look at his food until we could tell him to go eat. It was great. He, he was a great dog. But if you fast forward a few years, a few houses later, a few moves, we got cats. And I was determined I was going to train the cats <laughs> just like I had trained the dog. It didn't work. Henry had no problem obeying us because he already loved us. He just wanted to know what to do to make us happy. The cats have no problem disobeying us because they will never love us. (laughs) Cats are constitutionally incapable of loving anything. Uh, They have basically trained us how to take care of them. When they whine, we give them food. When they they paw their litter all over the floor, we clean it up. It's the way cats work. I heard someone say once that if you have a little dog, the difference between a little dog and a big dog is that a little dog will love you and a big dog will love you a lot. The difference between a little cat and a big cat is that the little cat will tolerate you and the big cat will rip out your jugular. (laughs) It's definitely true in my house. Now, when it comes to training an animal, this is what I learned from trying to train dogs and trying to train cats, animals are different. I know that seems obvious, but if you approach one animal to train it in the way you would train a different animal, it's not going to work. You have to take each creature as it is, not as you would wish it to be. And when it comes to discipleship, to growing in Christ, we have to understand what kind of animals, quote-unquote, humans are. Because what we assume we are 
has huge implications for how we think we learn and then how we grow in Christ-likeness. See, every approach to discipleship, whether it's verse memorization or youth group games, um, small group relationships or inductive Bible study or contemplative prayer, whatever it is, every approach to discipleship assumes an understanding of what human beings are and then structures itself accordingly. And it's absolutely vital that we have in mind the same idea of what human beings are if the way we go about discipleship is going to make any sort of sense. We need to know what we are so we know how we learn, so we know what to do to help us grow in Christ-likeness. To put it in that analogy I've already used, if humans are more cat people and we're training them like dog people, it's not going to work. Now, it's this kind of implicit, sort of unstated assumption of what human beings are that I think is in the background of the passage that we heard read just a few minutes ago, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. It's one of the most famous statements that Jesus ever made. Uh, it's important enough, it's showed up in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and also in Luke. It's what we call the greatest commandment, or the great commandment. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. If you're using one of these black Bibles that's underneath the seat in front of you, it is on page 984. Uh, and if you want to follow along in a different language, feel free to grab. We've got a bunch of Bibles in different languages in the booth back there by the video camera. Now, when we get to Matthew chapter 22, to this point in Jesus's life, we're in his last week leading up to his crucifixion. He's gone up to Jerusalem for what he knows will be the last time. He knows he's about to be crucified. And so in the previous chapter, in chapter 21, we read of his triumphal entry, of the Palm Sunday experience where the crowds are shouting Hosanna and throwing their coats down and palm branches down in front of him, and the crowds have not yet turned on him to chant crucify. The religious authorities, however, have watched all of this clamor and hubbub that he's creating. They've They've watched as he's healed people in the temple, and they are growing more and more indignant, is the word Matthew uses. So publicly, they begin to question his authority. Who is this guy? What right does he have to say these things? And to discredit him, they begin to plot a way to trap him, to capture him in his own words. So different groups go to Jesus with different questions designed to get him to say something that's going to make the crowds uh, react negatively, turn away from him. But of course, if you've read this before, you know his answers are so good that everybody keeps walking away astounded with his wisdom. Where, where did he learn to teach like this? So by the time we get to Matthew 22, verse 34, we're at the point where the Pharisees, a particularly strident group, a religious group, is trying to trap him. They send one of their own, a, a lawyer, somebody who's an expert in the law of Moses, uh, to ask him a question about a subject that has been long debated in Judaism. What is the greatest commandment? Which commandment is greatest? Let's read the interaction, picking up in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, that was on the question of the resurrection, that's one story above this one, uh, the Pharisees gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, an expert in the law, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment? in the law. Now this question uh, 
brought to mind a debate that was fairly often argued among Jewish scholars and especially the Jewish religious scholars. And different schools of thought had different answers to the question, what's the greatest or the great commandment? Some had long held that circumcision was the greatest commandment. Said circumcision was the greatest commandment because by it the Jewish people physically differentiated themselves from the uh, the other nations around them, and so showed that they were a chosen and set apart nation. That was the most important commandment. Others thought that Sabbath keeping was the most important commandment, the the command to take a day off, to rest, to do no work, because by keeping that commandment, again the Jewish people showed that they were totally dependent on God for everything they had. They could rest because God was taking care of them. Yet another group uh, felt that the whole sacrificial system itself was the greatest commandment. Uh, Obey the sacrifices, do the sacrifices that are required because by doing the sacrifices, the Jewish people could maintain the right relationship that they have with God. So whether it was circumcision, Sabbath keeping, or the sacrifice system, these were all common, understood, kind of Theological areas that people fell into. What's the greatest commandment? Well, I I think it's the Sabbath. Okay, that puts you in this this camp, in this category. So they asked Jesus, which camp are you in? Now, behind it may have been this hope that he would answer in such a way that the crowds would be like, oh, another one of these heavy burdens uh, that the religious elite, the teachers, lay on us. But Jesus doesn't place himself in any one of those camps. Uh, Instead, he puts himself into a whole new category, a category that didn't get as much talk, a group called the love group. Sounds really nice. He put himself in the love camp. Look at verse 37. And Jesus said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you want to boil the whole Old Testament law down, it's these two. This is it. Now, as far as we know, Jesus was the first Jewish thinker to put these two verses together. Now, he wasn't the first to say that love was the most fundamental aspect of the law. Uh, There was another rabbi before him who was once challenged by a Gentile to summarize the entirety of the whole law in the time that he could stand on one foot. So he said, love your neighbor, everything else is commentary. That was his summary. So love had been seen before as a central aspect, if not the central point, of the entire Mosaic law, of the entire system. But Jesus is the first to say, love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor. Now, scholars agree it's fairly likely that Jesus was asked this question more than once uh, on different occasions, to the point where this almost feels like he's got a rehearsed answer. What's the greatest commandment? I've heard this one love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Not that he was just rattling off a trite answer, but he knew the answer. Uh, Some of the evidence for that may come through in Luke, where the same two commands are put together. But they're actually put together by a lawyer, a Pharisee, whom Jesus asks, how do you read the law? And he says, I think it's to love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. So these two commands uh, together uh, form, I guess, what we could call Jesus' love camp or something like that, which sounds like a great theme for VBS. But... um, 
the two commands, that was kind of a joke that fell a little flat, wasn't it? I wasn't sure. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate the laugh in the back. Um, let's get back to the text. So these two verses come together from two different parts of the Old Testament. The first from Deuteronomy 6. It's a, it's a part of the Bible that devout Jews would recite twice daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the passage continues. Uh, but Jesus goes then to Leviticus chapter 19, where he pulls a verse out of the context of whom am I allowed to bear a grudge against? And the answer is, don't bear a grudge against your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when Jesus takes these two commands, he pulls them out of their original context. He puts them together and says, this is the whole law. He is very intentionally, I think, putting himself into a group that is in opposition to the other three that I mentioned. And there were more. Because what those three have in common whether it's circumcision or Sabbath-keeping or the sacrificial system, what those perspectives have in common is they all say that the fundamental definition of our relationship with God, the way you and I relate to Him, is obedience. Now, they quibble about which law is the most important, but fundamentally what we do, how we relate to God, is to obey. And when they ask Jesus what's the greatest commandment, he says, fundamentally, the way you and I relate to God is love. Now, there's a difference. There's obviously a difference. And anyone who's had a pet or a child or any sort of human relationship knows there's a difference between love and between obedience. Now, some of you may be asking, well, how can God command love? How can God command what is essentially, we think, a feeling? Because you can't command feelings, right? It doesn't work if you tell somebody, here's what you have to do. You have to love. It's hard to sort of gin that up within, within ourselves or inside of ourselves. And you may have a point if you're thinking that because you can't command a specific feeling. But what you can command is a correct response to a specific action. In other words, if, you, uh, if you're the type of person that you look at somebody making a sacrifice on your behalf and your response is indifference, that's a bad response. And we could, we could command you, don't respond that way. Don't you understand what this person has done for you? Again, that's the fundamental problem with cats. Our dogs, our dogs have, each one of them has loved us and so wants to obey. But you can't look a cat in the face and say, love me. And it says... Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. But rescue a dog, the dog will love you forever. Rescue a cat from a life of petty crime on the streets, thieving and sneaking around, it thinks it deserves it. See, love is the greatest commandment and the first commandment because love is the right response to who God is and what he's done for us. That's why God can say, love. And if you think even of the original context, Deuteronomy 6, where love the Lord your God comes from, it comes out of a response to God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery and bondage in Egypt. God says, look what I've done for you. The right response is to love. But Jesus doesn't stop with just love the Lord your God. He also pairs love your neighbor with that because these two commandments stand together. You cannot obey the second without first obeying 
the first. You cannot love others well if you don't love God first. And if you do love God first, it will automatically and inevitably spill over into love for one another, especially as we begin to see each other the way God sees us. One commentator writes, the two commandments are the greatest because all Scripture depends on them. That is, nothing in Scripture makes sense or can be truly obeyed unless these two commands are observed. Nothing in Scripture makes sense if we don't first love God and love others. This is why love is deeper, it's greater, it comes before obedience. Because when we love the right way, we'll obey the right way. When we love God, we'll obey God. It doesn't work the other way around. Now, what does that have to do with growing in Christ? What does that have to do with discipleship? Everything, I would say. Because every path of discipleship holds on to an assumed belief about what human beings are and how we fundamentally relate to God. And a lot of our discipleship methods aim more at the heart, or at the head, excuse me, they aim more at the head and our thoughts than they do at our hearts and our loves. But to illustrate what I mean, let's, let's take a brief historical survey, uh, just three different ways that humans have kind of been thought of and how that has played out in the way we try to disciple people, the way we try to help people uh, grow, help one another grow in Christ. Sometimes we make the mistake in our discipleship methods by thinking that fundamentally human beings are brain-oriented. Input goes in, rationality happens, choices come out. We tend to think humans act that way, like machines. If you put good things in, good things will come out. And there's plenty of times in the Bible where the mind is given this place of prominence. I think of Paul writing in Romans, do not be conformed to the present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or Paul praying or reminding people he's praying, I don't cease to remember you in my prayers, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Knowledge is important. We have to know who Jesus is. We have to know what he's like if we're going to grow to be like him, if we're going to grow to know him more. We need information to be like Christ. And so a lot of discipleship has, has been focused on assuming that humans are thinking things. If we can get more and better information in, we'll get more and better actions out. So our methods are transfer as much information as possible. Get as much of this into this as you can and a proper and a good life of obedience will come out. That's been the assumption, but it hasn't really been our track record or our experience. Because information by itself is not enough. Uh, adding more classes in order to disciple more people is not by itself enough. Mentoring, coaching, it's not the answer all by itself. Even having a really well-planned scope and strategy and a sequence for how you're going to run through different topics it's not enough on its own. Information does not automatically lead to transformation. If you don't believe me, ask yourself, how many times have I known the right thing to do and not done the right thing? It needs more fingers and toes than I have to count. 
information is not enough because we don't usually rationally argue ourselves into doing the wrong thing. We usually do the wrong thing despite what we're rationally thinking. As um, economists say, uh, human beings are not rational consumers. We are rationalizing consumers. We do what we want and we explain it later. Now, the church has recognized that. The church has long recognized it throughout its history that, that information alone is, is not the key to discipleship, information by itself. But in our tradition where we hold Scripture in such high respect, we've had a hard time not thinking about discipleship in terms of get this into this so that the actions come out. But a couple of decades ago, we started to recognize we're teaching a lot of the Bible, but we're not seeing a lot of life change. Something must be missing. Uh, maybe at root, people aren't thinkers. Maybe at root, people are believers. You know, I, I, I think one thing, but I actually believe something else. So let's, let's target the beliefs. Let's get at those beliefs. So we began to develop discipleship methods that were essentially the same as before, except we went beyond information transfer and we started targeting a little deeper into the person. We started surfacing um, unseen or unacknowledged beliefs and said, yeah, I know you're giving lip service to what the Bible says here, but don't you see how your actions are showing what you really believe is such and such? Now, confront that belief. We gave this particular approach a new name. We called it Worldview Education. And we began targeting those foundational assumptions, those beliefs that dictated what we then were willing to think was true. And just like the thinking perspective, there is certainly scriptural backing for this. Uh, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, says the author of Hebrews, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. In Acts, when Paul is leading the Philippian jailer to Christ, and he says, what must I do? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Belief is important, absolutely. Belief is important. But there might be a little more to it. Because we kept doing the same discipleship methods except targeting a little more of the beliefs, and we added accountability groups. Uh, So that way... What we said we believed was evidenced by our actions as long as we kept one another accountable and did all the right things to show we believed all the right things. But even within that movement, we started to realize there might be some problems with the view that at core, we are believers. Because we all have a strong, fairly strong tendency to act contrary to even our deeply held beliefs. For instance, I strongly believe that if I would eat healthier and eat a little less, I could lose the 10 pounds I picked up during Indie Burger Week last year. And yet, every time I see a burger, every time I sit down to another amazing meal my wife has made, I still go back for seconds and thirds of the meat and the starch and leave the broccoli behind. Even though I'm very convinced that if I would eat the broccoli, I would feel better and maybe lose a little bit of weight, but I just love the other food more than I love the broccoli. Which points us to yet a a deeper level below thinking and below believing. Maybe humans at root are not primarily thinkers, you know, content in, actions out. And maybe we're not even believers. Content in, rearrange beliefs, then actions out. 
Maybe fundamentally human beings are lovers. Maybe what we do is not think or believe so much as love. And what we love then determines what we will find believable and what we're willing to accept as true. This is a newer discussion that's happening in discipleship circles and among the discipleship literature. I call it a new discussion, but it's really a recapturing of a very, very old way of looking at human beings. For the first five, six, 17, 18 centuries of the church, this was the fundamental belief about what human beings were, that we were, we were lovers. We needed to be given a better picture, something to fall in love with more than we needed to be given content and information. So this assumption is what's behind our discussions of discipleship at Faith Church. That's why we said a couple of weeks ago when we kicked off this discussion of discipleship that discipleship at its core is nothing more than beholding the glory of God and being transformed by the beauty of who he is and what he's done for us. Because that image is not so much about getting content into our heads or of even shaking up our beliefs as it is drawing our hearts Toward him. Now, thinking of humans as lovers first, I think makes a lot more sense of our experience. Who among us has not seen friends or loved ones make choices that are clearly irrational? And you sit down and you try to have a rational pros and cons decision about what they're going to do, and it doesn't matter because they're not making a rational decision. They're making a decision based on love, based on being drawn towards an idea of flourishing or of the good life that that pulls them in that direction. We are fundamentally lovers. Sometimes that's negative, but sometimes it's positive. We watch parents make incredibly sacrificial actions towards their children. Things that are irrational, they give so much more than they will ever get out of it, and yet because they love their child, they're willing to do just about anything for their child. We are, before we're thinkers, before we're believers, we are lovers. Now our church staff and some of the elder executive board and and some of our uh, Ministry leaders are reading through a book together right now that is within this stream of discipleship thinking, trying to recapture this old idea. Uh, And the author says in an early chapter of the book, to be human is to be animated by and oriented by some vision of the good life, some picture of what counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why, this author argues, this is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. We are oriented, we're positioned, we're directed by our longings, by our desires. And so we adopt ways of life that are in accordance with that image that we're drawn to. Not not usually, he says, not usually because we've thought it through and chosen the most rational picture but rather because some picture has captured our imagination. Some vision for what life could be has captured our hearts before it's captured our heads. So when we think about discipleship at Faith Church, I think it's vital for us to recapture this insight that we are creatures most directed by our loves and specifically by what we love most or ultimate. This perspective assumes that before anything else, we are worshipers. We all love and worship something as 
ultimate. And whatever that thing is we love, that's what determines then what we believe and what we think. Now, to be clear, this is not a perspective that is rejecting knowledge or rejecting belief. Belief and knowledge are vitally important, but we need more. We need more than just knowledge and more than just belief. We need love. Which is why I think Jesus is putting this on the table in Matthew 22, verses 34. He doesn't say any number of other commands in Old Testament in Scripture that he could have said, like Exodus 19, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. He doesn't say obey is the greatest commandment. He says love. The most important thing to do is love. Because when we love, obedience follows. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with a command like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? How do we take that and, and apply it into our everyday lives without just trying harder? Because we have to do something about this, not least because Jesus told us this is what everything in our relationship with God hinges on. It depends on this ability to love him and love others. We can't not put it into practice. Another author said, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. You can't not love. The question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And we've got to find our ultimate love in God. That's what it means to be a disciple, to reorient our love towards him off of the rival visions of flourishing, the rival gods that we think are going to get us to the thing that we want or desire or crave most, and, and not just move our obedience to God, but actually move our affections to God, to love him most, to have our loves reoriented and transformed. When Jesus said to love the Lord your God, he's saying that because we are made to love the one who made and loves us, if we don't, we will never find the love we're looking for. We will always be in some sort of state of existential restlessness, like a, uh, like a balloon filled with air but tied down underwater, always pulling against the thing that's holding it down, trying to find its true home, which is not underwater. It's above the water. We'll be like that balloon trapped underwater. We'll be restless, pulling, tugging, trying to find the thing we were made for, even as we lash ourselves to different weights on the bottom of this pool, thinking maybe that's the thing that will, will pull us when everything in us is pulling us a different direction. So how do we learn to love God? What do we do? Well, the absolute worst thing you can do is try to muster up some sort of love response through sheer willpower. You can't get in front of the mirror, look yourself in the eyes and say, feel something. It just doesn't work. You'll be about as successful as trying to get a three-year-old to love peas by shoveling them down his throat over and over again. It's not going to work. And the second worst thing you can do is fake it. 
and say, well, I know I won't actually be able to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, or love my neighbor as myself, but maybe a little bit. So in order to convince everybody else that I'm doing this, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and act like I do. Uh, maybe nobody will notice. If I pray out loud, if I tithe regularly, if I stand with my arms in the air while I sing, if I'm constantly sacrificing for other people, if, I, if, you know, if I'm helping everyone who needs it, all of those are good things to do, by the way. But if you're doing them to convince yourself or to convince God or to convince others that you love him most, then all you're really doing, you're not loving other people, you're using other people to try to convince God that you love him. You're not able to love someone else if you're only loving them for your own sake. And the more you try, the more it'll become obvious to yourself and probably to others that you're just using them to feel good about yourself in front of God. Don't fake it. That's not going to get you anywhere. Now, those are obviously negative ways to apply this passage. So if you have to write down what not to do, write that down. But here's what you should do. The second best thing you can do to grow your love for God is to imitate others who so obviously love him more than you do at the moment. Now, I know some of you are thinking that sounds like what you just told us not to do. Now, I'm not saying fake it and convince others. I'm saying imitate others. Look at those around you who you know by the way they pray, by the way they sing, by the way they read scripture, by the way they talk about God, that they are so much more in love and have chosen to love him at such a a deeper level than you're able to right now. I have my list of people that I watch because the way they pray, the way they talk about God, the way they love other people is evidence of a deep and abiding love for God. And I'm not going to say their names because that embarrassed them. But I look at them and I look at the way they love God and I imitate it. Because in the imitating, you actually learn the doing. A lot like how kids will play house and imitate their parents. Now, they're not trying to trick us into thinking that they are pint-sized homemakers. That's not the point. They're imitating adult behavior because in doing so, they learn adult behavior. We imitate those who love God because in doing so, we actually learn how to love God. That's why we get together as a church regularly. Uh, so that we have the opportunity to see and hear from one another how they are loving God in everyday life, how they're putting it into practice, how they are, their hearts are being more and more captured by uh, the goodness of God's grace to them, and so are falling more and more in love with Him. That's why we sing together. That's why we read to Scripture together. That's why we pray together to remind one another by our example and by our words how much God loves us and what he has done for us. Which leads me to the the best thing you can do to grow in your love for God, which is to regularly, continually, purposefully fix your gaze on the cross. Do whatever it is you have to do to continually bring your mind's eye back to what Jesus did for you on the cross. To see how his love was first shown to us so that your love is a response to him. That's why we get together in worship and specifically and intentionally and purposefully 
draw our hearts through song, through scripture, through preaching, back to, every single week, back to the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Because this is how we learn to love God. Look again at the commandment that Jesus gives us in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, he says, not advice. He doesn't say this is the best advice I can give you. Try to love God with everything you have and everything you are. He says this is, this is the first and the most important command I can give you. Love God. And when Jesus calls it a commandment, he puts a very sharp point on it. Because none of us can do it. None of us can obey this command. We've tried, and we can't do it. But thank God Jesus has done it for us. Thank God, Jesus has done it for us. St. John writes in his first letter in chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. Why? He says in the same chapter, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the only one in all of history who has perfectly kept this command to love God with all of his heart and soul, mind and strength. And to love his neighbor perfectly as himself. He's the only one to ever do it. And because he sacrificed himself for us... We, through accepting that free gift he's given us and turning away from all the ways we've tried to fulfill this love we need, we're now free. Free to love God for his own sake and free to love other people for their sakes. No longer are we trying to muster up love for God and love for one another so that we can earn some sort of goodness or gift or or, or earn something from God. We've already been given it. We've already been given the grace freely. And now we're free to love. We're free to actually do the command instead of feel the command as a crushing weight on us, showing us that we can't. Because we've been set free to love, we can now experience the love of God that transforms our lives. There's a philosopher down in Dallas who says that one of the primary purposes of the gospel is to reorder our deepest loves and affections to give us new purposes and new desires for our lives in this world here and now. He says, our disordered loves are replaced by reordered loves as we learn to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in obedience to the first commandment. And in making God our top priority, we also learn how to love ourselves, our neighbors, and all of creation and everything in it in the right way, as the second commandment requires. What is most fundamental about you, about your kids, about everyone you've ever met, ever loved, ever cared for, is that we are primarily, first, and most fundamentally, lovers. Captured by a vision of goodness. And like a moth to the flame, we are we are going full steam at it. 
And until we can see God and especially see Jesus on the cross and be captured by the grace and the goodness of that image, we will constantly find ourselves pulled off in other directions, living lives of sinfulness as we pursue and attempt to serve and preserve all these other gods that cannot fulfill the infinite love we were made for. It's a love that can only be found in God and only be lived out rightly when it's found in God. You, me, my friends, we are lovers. So let's remind one another to love God. Father, I'm thankful that you did not just give us a command and just tell us to love you. Instead, you gave us a reason to love you. We would obey a powerful God. But we can only love a good God. You have shown us this goodness in Christ. I pray that you would kindle within us the love response. Help us, since you move to us in love, help us respond to you with the love that you call us to have for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.